Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The Organic Wine Podcast is brought to you by Centralis. Centralis is my winery that I started with my wife, Wendy, because we thought it was unacceptable that the majority of our wine choices today force us to support quote-unquote conventional industrial agriculture that harms us and the world, and opaque production practices that turns wine into a mystery beverage. Most wines don't reflect what we want or who we are, and we were tired of organic farming and transparent winemaking being niche. We want them to be the norm. You can learn more about Centralis and purchase our wines and join our wine club and email list at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. This episode is a bit unusual for this podcast. It's about how to purchase real estate. And my guest is rural mortgage banker for United Ag Lending, Brady Shepard. I'm very grateful to Brady for the time he spent with me preparing for this episode. And I think you'll find this episode packed with potentially life-changing ideas. Why life-changing? Because for better or for worse, the U.S. economy is founded on real estate. The laws and economic structure that guide our society were written by and for landowners. And behind every glass of wine is a piece of land where it was grown that somebody or some entity owns. Did you know that you can buy real estate with less than 20% down? You might not even have to put any cash down. And your credit doesn't have to be perfect either. We talk about these ideas and so much more in this episode. I also want to give a shout out to Sugar Todd, who inspired me to consider doing this episode. And I want to share one more idea that was an inspiration for this episode. Did you know that as a self-employed individual, if you own your own winery or other business, for example, you can set up a 401k for yourself. As the business owner and employee, you can contribute two separate amounts of funds to the 401k. So you're double contributing. And here's a crucial bit. You can set up a 401k that is self-directed. That means you don't have to invest those funds into the stock market. You can invest them in any investment opportunity that you find, and that includes real estate, for example. And if you had a job or currently have a second job outside of your self-employed business where you have a 401k, you can roll those funds from previous jobs or current jobs into your self-directed 401k. Now, I could probably do a whole episode on just this strategy, but I wanted to mention it because if it could apply to your situation, it's a potentially incredible way to leverage your business to invest in real estate. A final disclaimer, nothing that I or Brady say on this episode is meant to be investment advice. And please talk to an accountant about your personal situation. Actually, talking to an accountant can be just as eye-opening as talking to a mortgage banker. A big thanks to Brady, who, if you stay tuned, literally gives his phone number for anyone who might need help getting a mortgage loan. Enjoy. Brady, thank you so much for doing this, uh, and welcome. And I'm wondering if you could sort of introduce yourself saying, you know, who you are and what you do and why why we started talking. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, and, and thank you for having me. Um, so I um, have been in the mortgage industry now for... A little over 20 years. Um, I didn't intend to start out on that path, but <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> destiny has a, a funny way of introducing itself. But um, I had initially um, 
gone to a conservatory of music uh, for uh, performance, um, emphasis on voice and uh, doing opera. And uh, just kind of got into banking as a, a side job, and then uh, slowly as one does, as as, <laughs> right? as your average opera singer does. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I like to joke about that and say, you know, I I do uh, I do sing opera. Um, so naturally, I also uh, do mortgages. <laughs> so I, it, it's fair, um, but you know. It has been a very, very interesting adventure. So, uh, you know, I've been working on the residential side for a very long time, as well as doing agriculture loans, um, which is kind of how we uh, got hooked up and started chatting. Yeah. And thank you for adding that hook, because I think, you know, just starting off the this episode of the Organic Wine Podcast by introducing a, a mortgage broker. Um, or mortgage banker (laughs) will confuse some people but um, you just you just drove it home there which was I've just had multiple conversations now with young up-and-coming winemakers or you know just people who are interested in the wine industry and getting involved and of course you know the unspoken thing behind this episode this this entire show is the the fact that wine is an agricultural product and reconnecting people to agriculture is a big emphasis of what I'm trying to do to, you know, show its importance, to bring it, it, bring it back into the center of focus for wine. And, and then behind that, the unspoken thing behind agriculture is land right? and the primacy of the need for owning real estate or controlling real estate in some way to be able to do agriculture. And uh, so multiple conversations I've had just brought to me the importance of sort of talking about real estate and acquiring real estate or what options are available. And, and what I've found in, you know, my history is like, I was a real estate agent for uh, a few years in Los Angeles and, you know, learned a lot through that process as well. And, and it's definitely informed me. And a big part of why I became a real estate agent at that time was I had gone through this process in the midst of, I guess it's always crazy real estate in Los Angeles, but I, had been through a process of buying my first home and realized how instrumental it is to financial well-being, you know, real how how just fundamental real estate is to our entire economy. I'd learned this enormous amount of just how it works and the process of getting loans and the different kinds of loans that are available. And I wanted to share that. I wanted to help yeah. people because I realized how removed most people are from this information that I I began to realize was so fundamental to, you know, breaking cycles of poverty, to building wealth, to just, you know, participating in this economy at a level beyond just, you know, paycheck to paycheck existence. And so, you know, it has a real personal meaning to me. And I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm taking your airtime. I'm going to, we're going to get to you quickly. No, you're fine. All good points. All good points. Yeah. So a lot of the people that I, um, spoke with it it's really just what was that first step like i don't even know where to begin and as i thought about this you know who would be a person to talk to who is the first person you talk to really it's not an agent per se because that you know they're going to facilitate you in doing paperwork for purchases but it's the people that make the deal it's the mortgage the the bankers the mortgage brokers that are 
really setting the terms for what we can do, you know, how much we can afford, who let us know how much we can afford and what options are available to us, what instrument, what investment instruments, what loan instruments are available. And so that's why I started looking and found you and you've been so great to do this. So again, thank you for, and I just wanted to set that stage and um, give wet people's whistle that this will be a, you know, a nice, juicy, practical uh, thing. And so just to start, let's talk about some of the advantages to owning real estate. I sort of mentioned, you know, my my sort of uh, awakening awareness of how important it was just to, to economic well-being and wealth building and that kind of thing. Right. But but practically, like you know, what what are the advantages to owning a piece of real estate? Um, you want to talk about some of those? Yeah, of course. Um, so one of the the biggest advantages that I I do like to bring up with people is, and we had discussed this before as well. But if you ask. Um, kind of point blank t- to anybody, really, um, if they have a set schedule of how much money they actually set aside. Like, do you have uh, retirement funds? Do you have something set up with your employer? Do you have savings accounts? Um, and the one thing that really goes by the wayside is a savings account. So if you say, I have 10% or 15% of my paycheck uh, or each paycheck, that automatically goes into that savings account, that's great. But where the big advantage uh, with a mortgage in particular um, is that payment is set up so that you've got a clear division of principal and interest in that payment. Now that principal, you're paying yourself. So it's already built into that payment. Uh, So you don't really even have to think about it. It just automatically goes aside and you just build equity each month, month after month. Um, Now that's also provided that the market is doing well, which right now um, has been kind of going gangbusters. So people have noticed (laughs) a huge influx in uh, equity that they can tap into um, in their property, you know, maybe turn, turn that property, sell it, take that equity, put it into something else. Um, so that's the easiest thing to point out. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool analogy about, I think you asked me that question of like, you know, how many people do you know are putting, you know, $235 a month into a savings account? Uh, But your point being essentially, you know, whatever your principle is, that is essentially what you're doing is putting that aside as saved money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that potentially, at the very least, you know, is just growing because you're adding more to it. Um, and ideally, maybe appreciate, you know, the value of your property may be appreciating and 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 maybe I'm jumping ahead as that's another advantage to potentially yeah, owning yeah. real estate. It's Absolutely. appreciation. But um, yeah, continue. Sorry. So I, I do like that analogy, though, of like the savings account. Um, yeah, of course. Um, and then some people, you know, they uh, just kind of build off from there. So it may be more than... Uh, about just acquiring one property and moving into a different one, but um, kind of turning that that property that you're leaving, that departure residence, into a rental where you have a tenant who comes in, they're essentially making that payment for you. So they're the ones who are putting that money into that savings account, uh, building that equity for you while you move on into a different property. So and a lot of people um, operate that way and they kind of build that wealth by adding 
uh, more houses to their portfolio. And when we talk about, so there, I, maybe it's good to make the distinction. There's there's some real just basic advantages to say buying a home or buying a you know a piece of property that you're going to use yourself, and right. that you just already mentioned that you know it's sort of like an automatic savings account. Um, you can build equity in that if, and, and even just with savings, even if it doesn't appreciate and if it does appreciate, you build even more equity and that equity can then be, you know, you can take out a, a home equity line of credit, which can be used to buy other properties right. or, or to, you know, invest in other investment opportunities that, uh, you know, can make more money, that can generate more wealth. Um, and then, then there's the second class, I guess, is when, what the advantages are to, not just uh, you know having a piece of property that you are using but to having a piece of property that you are uh using as an investment so you're you've bought it to generate income and you know traditionally what we think of is what you just mentioned with tenants but um this is where i think you know uh, uh agricultural land can come into play because uh, i think you know there was a podcast that i did with uh you know a former accountant who has purchased several vineyards in the central coast area here in California. And I was asking him about that. And, you know, that's the way he described his purchasing of these vineyards is like, essentially, I was like, how do you make it work, you know, considering how tough it is to make money. And, um, and that was the simple calculation that he gave was like, you know, you, you buy a piece of land at the right price, and the you can sell the grapes from that mm-hmm. property to essentially the, the grapes are your tenants like they pay the right. the mortgage on your property um and you meanwhile are building equity you're you know every year that you're selling the grapes and paying the mortgage you're building equity in that property um so also um for both of these kinds of things whether it's your primary or an investment property there are tax advantages right can you sort of break down how that works or um, you know the, the basics of that yeah on on that, I always, uh, when that topic comes up, I always defer it to, you know, if someone has an accountant uh, or a CPA, um, you know, we can't promise anything, uh, but, you know, we, we do like to kind of give that disclaimer that, you know, when we're talking to someone say, well, uh, property does come with tax advantages, but that's something that you're going to want to talk to your accountant about because um, really every Every individual's financial situation is very much like a fingerprint. Um, every single one is just a little bit different. So, you know, I wouldn't be able to to come in and say, yes, this is this is the same tax benefit that every single person gets, because that wouldn't be true. So, right. um, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, it's not it's not quite that black and white. Um, it is a very big gray area. So that's where. That's where your CPA and those accountants will come in and say, okay, um, yes, you absolutely do have some extra tax advantages or, you know, another individual might say, um, you know, your current situation, probably not so much, but it's still uh, a good thing to own, own that property. It's still, you know, building wealth for you. Yeah, I mean, some of those advantages, and we won't say that they will apply, but could could include... Could. It could include like uh, writing off your property taxes and the insurance that you pay for that for your primary residence, for example. Right, right. Um, expenses, like if you have an investment property, you know, in addition to your primary or instead of a primary, um, 
potentially write off uh, the expenses associated with managing and maintaining that property. You can uh, potentially write off uh, depreciation, which is a sort of calculation of how much it is devalued over like 24 and a half years or something like that. I I don't know exactly what it is, but why it's good, why it's good to involve an accountant. But um, it's stuff that you wouldn't even hear of without an accountant telling you about it so that's why it's once you get into that thing it's you you know you can look it up but you definitely right like you said should be talking to somebody about how to how to figure that out for that specific property in your specific situation and TurboTax is is great, but it might not, <laughs> might yeah. not tell you everything that you're really looking <laughs> yeah. for. So uh, yeah, that's where your professional comes in uh, into play. So well, and okay, so maybe the transition that I'll say is to give as a final advantage. Not that this is a complete list of advantages, but just to you know wet people's whistle to keep keep the get them excited about why why real estate is a, a valuable thing to consider. Um, especially in the investment thing is this idea of using leverage, which is just a fancy word for, you know, getting a loan um, and being able to buy a property without having the cash to pay for a million dollar property. You don't have to have all that money. You can have a fraction of that and still buy something that's worth that much, which is, um, you know, there are other examples of that in the world, but it is... uh, a really important aspect of this asset class this and um and and that's kind of where you come in because most people you know especially with today's housing prices um and and maybe before we before we transition but um i was going to say with today's housing prices most people can't pay cash for a piece of property whether it's a farm in the middle of nowhere or which because i think farmland right now is just as expensive as la real estate in some places yeah yeah depending (laughs) depending on the area that you're in uh definitely can get pretty outrageous pretty quickly yeah i mean i know like napa for example i you know it's it's you know forget about it but um (laughs) but (laughs) is you know some interesting things have just changed in the landscape so we're talking uh just after you know just after whatever may 1st where it's may uh what is it today may 7th uh-huh. um and this week the the fed raised the rate a half point um how does that impact real estate and what what does that what do you think about the you know purchasing landscape right now is it a good time to buy real estate what, what are your thoughts um you know there are, I, I i that's a real jam-packed loaded question <laughs> i know <laughs> so i would say certainly there have been better times uh to buy but there's never really a a truly bad time to buy um because you know once you acquire that property um it's an asset um, you know, whether you buy high or buy low. So it's just a plain asset that you're adding to your portfolio, which is always a good thing. Um, now, rates, you know, they they come and go. You know, there's a lot of ebb and flow with, uh, with that pricing model. Uh, we have been conditioned for a very long time uh, for the past several years uh, for lower rates. Um, but you know, even with the the rate hikes and you know housing prices going up, it's still um, historically, when you look at the big picture, we're still on the very very low end of of that cusp. So 
um, you know, we're still still very low. Um, yeah, they they say you know the the best time to buy real estate or plant a tree is twenty years ago, and the second best time is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, there you go. <laughs> uh, and of course, I think what you're saying, though, you know, to the point of where we are right now, there have been better times, and and you sort of have to look at each opportunity individually at you know anyway regardless of what time in history it is like does it make sense um does it pencil out you know as a as an investment uh and that is much more important than you know the where you are now because yeah if you look in 20 years i think over almost any 20 year time i can't think I, i don't know i'm sure there are places around the country maybe that doesn't pan out but it seems like if you're holding it for 20 years, you probably come out ahead. You're right. Although, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just such a big, uh, big picture thing. It's it's kind right. of difficult to wrap your mind around it, especially if um, it's a first time investment uh, for yourself. You know, it's uh, it's very difficult to see that long game um, and to get really focused on well, where is it going to be in a year or where is it going to be in six months? Um, so it's hard to really quantify an asset that way. It's much easier to do that 10-year landscape or that 15 or 20-year that you're talking about. So getting back to, I'm, I'm trying to be in the mindset of somebody who really knows nothing. And, you know, hopefully we've touched on some ideas just to like tantalize the minds of, of those who are listening. Um, and, and I tried to do this transition about leverage and how that leads to you and where you come in mm-hmm. and why I think really you start with somebody like you, why somebody would start with a, a banker, mortgage, you know, a mortgage lender of some variety, because sure. you don't know really what you can do until you talk to somebody like you. If you don't know where to begin, the best place to start is with somebody like you who can sort of educate you on, okay, what is your financial situation? Because that's what you do. You start by looking at that and then say, this is what you can afford. You know, how much do you have in cash that you plan to use for this house or property or whatever it is? And therefore, what can you afford? Can you can you talk about that? You know, what how that all begins and you know what what somebody what what sort of yeah. first step somebody should take in 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 order to prepare for making a purchase right. and and you know having i mean other than you know get on the phone and call you <laughs> um right. which is a good first step i think but you know if you want to <laughs> expound on that yeah of course um so what what we kind of tell people um when i first have that conversation um and especially first time home buyers uh it is very difficult to uh get the right information without talking to the person uh dealing with loans directly um just because there's so much information and misinformation out there um and a lot of times we find that new buyers in particular uh will try and qualify themselves which is the worst right. thing that you can do. Um, <laughs> so, right. you know, we right. look at those those first time home buyers and say, um, no, you don't need a full twenty percent as a down payment, regardless of what mom and dad have told you, because that's when they got their mortgage. You know, twenty five, right. thirty years ago, it was very different, <laughs> different lending right. guidelines back then, um, and it's just simply not true uh, today. There are plenty, plenty of resources out there for lower down payment options, um, and people are honestly sometimes shocked that okay, I do qualify for something. 
Um, and then on the other well, side, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to underline that. So let's start with that as a first piece of truth. So let's we. I want to restate that you don't need 20% down to buy a piece of property, um, especially if it's your first property there. It's even there, there's even some special. Well, we'll get into that, but you don't need 20% down, period. Um, what is the what is a reality? Like, what is the percentage that you need? What what are options are available? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so you have options anywhere from honestly zero down um, to 3% down, 5% down, 3.5% down. So there are a variety of options, um, depending on what the is the, of, how, yeah. How, sorry. Yeah. I you're probably about to answer this, but <laughs> what would be a, how could you do a 0% down? Okay. So this is going to be more of, more of a rural type property. So a USDA okay. loan, um, or an RD loan, uh, what some might know it as. Um, it's going to be, you know, homes that are on kind of the fringes of the city. So it's not going to be, um, you know, in big cities. It's going to be on the outside in, you know, less dense populations. So maybe perfect for a place where you want to plant a vineyard, perhaps? It, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you okay, got a little, right. more, little more open ground. Um, so the house itself also needs to be within an eligible area. So that's something that a lender will, will check, you know, when they've got a client who, you know, you don't have a lot of funds, you don't have a family member, uh, who can gift funds to you. So those zero down payment options, um, come into play. Um, okay. So they actually checked your, your family's financial situation or whether you have family at all. Uh, no, it's just uh, a recommendation. Sometimes, you know, when we go Got through it. and okay. say, you know, what, what kind of financials are we working with as far as down payment, um, got they it. say, you know, I've got maybe $500 in, in the bank. So we say, well, that's probably not going to be enough. <laughs> so we're going <laughs> to, we're going to, you know, not to squash anyone's dreams or anything. Uh, but, you know, we may say, um, you know, if you have a family member or a relative who can gift some funds to you, uh, we can use that as down payment. And then if that's not an option, then, you know, USDA loans would be a, a good option for them. Or um, if they qualify and they have military benefits, they can always do a VA loan. So it's also a, a government program. That's a and is a VA, mm-hmm. a VA has a zero down right. option? Yep. Okay. And are these zero down the, you, you said they're sort of, you know, not urban center properties, but would they apply to agricultural properties? Like, could you purchase a, a, a you know, a piece of property that was zoned for agriculture that had a house on it uh, with you, this kind of thing? You, you can um, with, uh, with those rural loans. Um, but if we're looking at the, the full USDA loan, um, there are some stipulations as far as, you know, how big the property can be. So those kind of things um, you would want to be a little more careful of. Uh, and if they don't fit that particular puzzle, um, then we transition over into the agriculture type loans. And those are going to actually uh, require a larger down payment on um, than those USDA loans. Now, do you do you happen to know what the limit the size limit is on those USDA loans? Um, 
for the property? Uh, I, you know, off the off the top of my head, I I know that twenty acres is probably going to be the maximum. Um, okay. So they'll probably want them under uh, under that mark. Yeah, I think for a lot of people that would still be really an exciting still, option. Yeah, still sizable. Yeah, um, that's that's really great to know. I I wasn't aware of that. Um, and now the ones that I am more aware of are like three percent. So this is when we move into the three percent down. Mm-hmm. They're essentially it's a conventional loan at three percent, right? Like there's not really a restriction on where or what. It's you're just getting a normal loan, but you right. only have to put three percent down. The one catch is can and for anything that's under twenty percent, um, if I'm correct, is mm-hmm. that there's PMI. Do you want to talk about PMI? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that is very true. Anything less than 20% uh, down payment does require uh, PMI, uh, private mortgage insurance that is added into the loan. Um, this is more insurance for the lender since there isn't that full 20%. Um but it can come in two different forms. So if that is going to make our payment too high, um, you know, almost always that PMI is just factored into that loan payment, but they have the option of doing what's called a single premium PMI, where it essentially takes uh, a, a chunk of that PMI and it's just paid at closing, uh, just like a typical closing cost, and takes it out of that payment. Um, when we do that, uh, I have always recommended that if you if you have a seller who's willing to pay some uh, or even all of those closing costs, that might be a prime time uh, to utilize that option and take it out of your mortgage payment and just have the seller pay that entire lump sum uh, PMI. Got it. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's so uh, just a recap. So you can purchase a home for three percent down, let's say, right. and you'll you'll your payment um let's talk about the payment so you'll <laughs> let's bring up these terms now like a pity p-i-t-i which is principal interest taxes and insurance and that's right. homeowners insurance um property taxes and then prince the principal and interest of the, the loan the and the, hmm? the the base payment and usually they're separate uh, usually if you're buying you know a home on a conventional loan those will all be wrapped into one payment and the print the interest and uh insurance i'm sorry the (laughs) insurance and taxes will be escrowed into an account that the bank pays because they want to guarantee that those are getting paid because that could affect the ownership of the property which they since they own the note on the property as long as you have a mortgage they don't want that to be impacted right um now with a three anything less than 20 percent down there's a fifth element on top of pity, and that's the PMI, the, the mortgage insurance. And that's just another chunk of money that you're paying on that monthly payment that goes to the bank as a form of insurance because you didn't have that full amount down. Correct. Um, okay. And then you're saying that you could negotiate a, a situation where the seller is covering PMI? Correct. Can you repeat that? Correct. Okay. Yes. So, and that's um, the one thing that not very many people know about, but we do get a lot of pushback with, you know, people saying, I don't like, it, it's sort of been trained into them. And I think that's part, part media, part family. 
<laughs> and nothing to do with the lending professional. Um, so, you know, they, they say, I, I don't want to pay PMI. I don't want to pay PMI. Well, if you don't have 20% as a down payment, you're going to pay PMI in some form or, or another. So if you don't want to pay it monthly, um, take it out of the payment. So you're not paying that PMI at all and have the seller pay it in one lump sum. So that is called a single premium PMI. Um, and it's usually, it, it factors out to uh, whatever, uh, I think it's about three and a half years worth of uh, PMI payments. So it just okay. takes, um, you know, 40, 40 some odd months worth of payments and lumps it in as one closing cost. Um, I would utilize that option mm. if you have an abundance of um, seller concessions or, you know, the seller has opted to pay all of your closing costs then absolutely 100% have them pay that. Now, oftentimes that will get that that gets added into your loan amount, is that correct? Uh not when it's not when it's the single premium PMI. It'll just show okay, up. Okay, so as, th- this would be okay. Yeah. This would be a seller's closing cost. Uh-huh. Okay. So wild. the seller seller can pay that if they're not uh then the buyer obviously has to pay that, but um, you know, depending on the sale price and the loan amount, that can get pretty costly. Uh, that's why I usually recommend if you're going to take that out of the payment and utilize that single premium payment option, have the seller pay that um, as right. opposed to the buyer incurring that expense. Now, and this would only make sense if the seller really wanted to sell. Like right. if it's a seller's market, as they say, which it seems like we've been in for a while, that's a an unlikely scenario for most situations. Right. Is right. that correct? I'm, unless you're I'm, I'm assuming, you're, yeah. Yeah, unless you're going to offer uh, you know, above asking, which also has been happening, but um, uh, yeah. you know, that that's a it's a good way to, you know, have the seller net what they want to net out of the sale of their house as well as the buyer getting some assistance from from that seller. That is a really cool idea. Um well, just we're getting nuggets here i love this this is even for somebody like me that is i feel like i've heard it all that's that's a there's a couple new ones already so this is fantastic um all right so let's let's talk again about like going back to just your first time um some some questions surrounding that especially since i'm approaching this from somebody who you know they're they're not just interested in a home but you know they're interested in um you know a home on which they can plant vines and yeah, and make yeah. wine, for example, or plant you know trees or whatever it is, whatever kind of fruit you know is good for where they live, and that and they you know they want to do agriculture, they want to make something, they want to ferment something. Um, do you recommend buying land with no home at first, um, or you know any you know any thoughts about that? Like, what are the pros and cons? Well. Um... Being that I, you know, I do residential as well as the agriculture, and I can tell you, they're two very, very different beasts altogether. Mm. Um, when you're looking at just a land purchase, um, now every lender is going to be a little bit different in their guidelines, uh, and certainly, you know, agriculture versus residential lots and that kind of thing. But um, since we're focusing on agriculture, those do come with higher down payments. So you will have to have more funds um, in order to qualify for those. So, you know, your down payments, like for our products, 
um, anywhere from 25 to 35 percent. Um, and then our minimum. That's for just that's just for a piece of raw land, basically. Right. No, no right. structures on it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's because there's. What is the rationale behind that? Just so that we can wrap our heads around it, there's there's less of a potential for income from that property. Therefore, it, there's more of a risk for the lender. Is that correct? Right, right. Like the, it, obviously, the the land isn't going to blow away um, like a house could, but <laughs> <laughs> the right, land, right. The land also doesn't have any kind of insurance requirements on it either. So when you make that purchase, that lender expects that there is going to be more skin in the game um, as opposed to having a, a dwelling um, on the property that can be insured and so that the the bank knows that, okay, if something happens, we can recoup the investment. Um, and that's where, you know, the higher down payment comes into play on those um, pieces of land. Got it. Um if you're looking for the best loan terms, you'll need to have the the home on the property. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you you are going to have to put a lot down. <laughs> right. right. Um, so it's, it makes it a lot harder to get into that property. Uh, whereas you you know just add a little two bedroom one bath house to 100 acres, and now you can actually get a conventional loan for three percent down. Right. Um, and and it's yeah, and you still get all that acreage with it, and you have a place to stay <laughs> when you're there. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay, great. So, well, let's, so just so, you know, we talk about some of these, what are, in addition to just a conventional loan where you can put a small amount down, what are some other, you know, sort of opportunities for people that are out there in terms of the types of loans and, and just to familiarize people with these kinds of names and ideas? Sure, sure. Um, so we've discussed uh, a little bit on uh, conventional, um, briefly touched on USDA and VA uh, being zero down payment options. Um, the other government-backed program is FHA. Um, most people are familiar with hearing that term. Um, that is a 3.5% down payment option. Um, and a lot of times we'll, we'll utilize that option if uh, you know, maybe maybe we've got some uh, credit scores that you know, they've got a few dings on it or they've been beaten up pretty substantially. <laughs> uh, FHA is a whole lot kinder when it comes to um, slightly imperfect credit. So, you know, that's another uh, another thing that people try and, you know, qualify themselves without talking to somebody. They hear that, oh, I have to have a perfect credit score. Well, I don't have a perfect credit score. What do I do? Um, so you don't need a, a perfect credit score. It helps, uh, that much is true, but, um, you know, it, it can be dinged up a little bit and you could still potentially qualify. So that's where FHA comes into play. Um, and then some other, some other options that, um, some lending institutions may offer. And, uh, certainly, you know, some institutions may have, you know, their own portfolio products that they can keep in-house. So those terms will be different than anything else that's, uh, that's offered or anything that, uh, that I'm discussing. But, um, you know, down payment assistance programs, um, you know, where they, they supply some or all of that down payment. Um, now, Are those supplied in... The, mm-hmm. in the form of how are they supplied is that a loan is that a grant or how, how does that work i yes. mean it seems like it wouldn't make that much <laughs> yes <laughs> yes is the answer yes is the depends. answer 
<laughs> so there are multiple options. There uh, right. are there are it now if it comes as a loan. I think I I think you mentioned there were forgivable loans even mm-hmm. in some cases. So it might be a loan, but it, essentially it goes away if you meet, you know all the you know, continue to make payments and things like that and whatever right. do all the right stuff. Um, um, and yeah. So that's I mean, and, and this is area by area. Is that correct? Or, correct. You know? Correct. So okay. each state um, and maybe even even each county might have a version of that, but. Uh, typically, the state will will have um, their main funded source. So, uh, you know, our our area, like around uh, Kansas and Missouri, I'll use that as an example. Um, you know, it's been um, some some years it's a grant, <laughs> and some years it's been uh, just like a silent second uh, mortgage, so that you don't make any payments on. Um, that may be forgivable after a five-year period or a 10-year period, um, depending on how long you live in the property. Um, and then if you say say it's got a five-year for forgiveness um, and you move out in year three or you refinance in year three, um, then it's going to be prorated. So whatever that state has given you, um, you know, you'll have to repay two years worth since you, you touched or you did something with that mortgage after that third year. So um, that's what those forgivable uh, seconds are. But um, like you, you had mentioned, each state is, is going to be different. Um, and certainly, um, like in our area, the program isn't the same every single year. And why they do that, why they change that, I'm, I don't know. But <laughs> you know, it's right. uh, each, each year comes with a, a different set of stipulations or guidelines. Got it. Um, I, I mean, I just think it's really helpful to know that that exists <laughs> and yeah, so that, yeah. you know, we, we can't give, you know, specifics here for everybody, but, um, you know, so that we bring awareness and people can start doing the research in their local thing, I think is really, I mean, these are just, again, some mind blowing things for us, especially a first time person who, first of all, didn't realize they only had to put 3% down. And second of all, didn't realize that there might be somebody out there who would give them that three percent right know? exactly um so that's really freeing and very cool to find out for i think uh, a first-time buyer uh, who's you know just been stressing about they're gonna have to save for 20 years to be able to mm-hmm. you know even put down something to buy a house uh to buy a cheap house you know right right um so and then i'm i just want to touch back on a couple different things um I I know from FHA uh, because that was the, the first, that was how I bought our our house uh, that I live in now, mm-hmm. and so it came with uh, we you know we I think it's three and a half percent down for FHA right. where it was at the time I don't know if they've changed those but um, so because of that there was mortgage insurance the PMI um, the mm-hmm. difference between a conventional loan as I understand it and uh, FHA loan is the FHA has a five-year minimum requirement for paying that PMI that y- even if your house value uh, or your property value increases significantly and you have more than 20% equity in your home, you can't get out of, like it doesn't go away. Um, but as I understand it, uh, in a conventional loan, you could actually uh apply to just have the mortgage insurance dropped if your 
property appreciated and you found yourself with more than 20% equity right. after a couple years. Right. So, uh, and I, I'll, I'll just pop in here for a real quick second. So please, please. Yeah. Uh, with, with conventional, that is true that if you, if you put a minimal down and you say, okay, well, I'm going to put 5% down. Um, typically how it works, it's one of, one of two options can happen with that PMI. So the first is just leaving the loan alone. Uh, you don't touch it. And then once you reach a 78% loan to value ratio that's based off of the initial assessment, um, then that PMI will automatically drop away. But uh, if, as you say, you believe you know the home appreciates enough, um, you can always go back and petition that lender or whoever is currently servicing your loan uh, petition them to have them remove the PMI out of the payment earlier than when it would just automatically just drop off on its own. Um, so they'll send someone out to assess the property, and if it if it has appreciated enough, uh, and at that point it's not seventy eight percent, it just needs to be eighty percent um, loan to value, and they'll drop it. So, got it. Excuse me. Then with uh, with FHA. Um, FHA is a lot different. <laughs> so okay. they've, they've changed some of their guidance, um, and views on PMI as well. So, um, the new, uh, regulations for PMI on FHA loans is that that PMI stays on the loan for the life of the loan. Um, wow. regardless of what, what loan to value ratio or how much equity you have in the property. So the only way to get rid of that PMI, if you're in an FHA loan is to refinance it into uh, some type of conventional product. Right. So just, you have to refinance out of your mortgage right. into a new one, right. basically. Um, okay. I think that's a good overview. I mean, I, we, we can certainly go into depth, but I think that gives people a you know, some, some heads up about some yeah, things to consider. Broad um, yeah. yeah. And so uh, let's just, again, go real granular and take all this down to the level of I'm a first time home buyer and I come to talk to you. What, what can I expect? Like what's the process and, and how can I, what am, what am I, what should I be thinking about in my financial situation that I could do to make it an easier process or to, to set myself up for, being able to afford the maximum amount that my, you know, that my income and everything else uh, could, will, will provide for. Sure, sure. With, yeah. Um, so I always tell people that um, pretty much what, what you're going to be uh, looking at or considering is just a two-year snapshot. So they're going to want to look at, you know, where you've worked for the last two years, where you've lived for the last two years, um, your income, what your assets look like, and certainly what your credit looks like. So just keep that two-year snapshot in mind. Um, so they don't like to see a whole lot of job hopping. So if you're if you're a guilty party to you know having uh, thirteen different jobs in a year, you might want to pump the brakes on that a little bit. <laughs> right. Um, or or have one job that you. Have yeah, one kept steady. consistently. Right. Yeah, like one steady. Like it might be part time, but at least you've kept it for right. over two years. Or right. Whatever. So they're they're looking for you know that that history, the consistency, uh, in that kind of thing. Um, and then when we're looking at credit, of course, you know 
ideally we don't want to see you know any late payments um, if there's a history of that that could be problematic for underwriting they'll want explanations you know what happened here so it's gonna it's going to dig pretty deep into some of those things so um, and, you know, and as, as I discovered recently not just I mean having good credit is great but yeah. if you carry a large balance uh from month to month for example so I was like putting um you know business expenses for one of my jobs uh you know that it was you know it's not my business but I was you know doing expenses on my credit card and I would pay that off every couple of weeks but you know the average per month was like a couple thousand dollar balance and that has to be added to my debt to income ratio right. uh which affected how much i could afford because they saw that as like well you have you know a couple thousand dollars of debt <laughs> every you know that that we have to account for and i'm like no i don't <laughs> what right. are you talking about yeah it's paid every um, month yeah yeah, I get paid, you know, more than once a month. So, um, but that's just, you know, one of those things I learned recently. So it, it, even if you have good credit, that is something to keep in mind as well, like keeping low balances on your credit. Um, exactly. As exactly. much as possible. Um, and that's, that's the other thing when, uh, when a lender goes in, um, you know, if you can pay those balances down, uh, you know, maybe even, even a month before. Uh, you know, any kind of credit pull or anything like that, just so that those balances can all report up to date. It can take some time for those payments to really trigger on credit. Um, because when a lender goes in and they pull that credit, it's just going to be a snapshot. And we see a lot of times, you know, particularly with self-employed people, um, you know, there's a lot of credit utilization going on. You know, you max yeah. the cards out and then you pay them off. You max the cards out and pay them off. Um, but if you pull that credit the wrong time, it's pulling that snapshot and now that's what they're going to use <laughs> for, right, right. for underwriting. Um, so that, uh, just kind of be, be cautious of. That's good to hear. And now I have a question I've heard. So if you're, let's say you're getting funds, uh, as a gift from uh -huh. somewhere, uh, or, I don't know, you know, you're moving money somehow, like you're, you're taking it out of this and putting it into your, your checking account so that you can use it as a down payment or, you know, for whatever, whatever it is. Is there a time to do that? Like, do you want that done before that snapshot as well? I mean, is that as important? I've heard different things about this. Like you want, you want to see the money in there. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it can be, and it, it might not be, but um, okay. You know, if if it is legitimate gift funds from a, a family member or relative, um, then we just have that that individual fill out a gift letter. And this is where you know there is some pushback. Um, sometimes they'll require a copy of that donor's bank account. And you know the the big question that comes into play is why do they need to supply that? They're not on the loan. Well. No, they're not on the loan, but now they are technically a part of the process. And underwriting always has to draw uh, the points from A to B to C. So they have to see where those funds originated, that they were already in the account, that you know they don't have to trace anything further back. So um, 
Got that it. that can get kind of hairy with some of that paperwork and explaining that to people. Um, but ideally, if they're going to be transferring funds around, uh, we like to keep the accounts as static as possible. Um, so trying to finish any kind of transfers or moving moving assets or deposits or anything like that uh, with uh, probably a two-month time frame um, before we start collecting financials. That way we consider those funds as seasoned funds is what, is what underwriting calls it. So uh. those transfers or deposits won't show on the bank statements that we collect. So imagine if you have transferred a bunch of funds around uh, in February. Well, uh, if we start collecting bank statements in April, those obviously are not going to be on the on the bank statements. So there's not going to be anything extra to explain. Got it. So if you're you know planning to use those uh, illicit funds from you know your arms dealing days from and you want to move them in from an <laughs> offshore account, do it. Well ahead of this <laughs> process. Earlier rather than later. Because <laughs> we don't want to know. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, but, okay, so we're in the midst of this process, and I don't want to lose sight of what you're telling us, which is, you know, somebody's come to you, they're getting approved, and the, and that the goal of this process of talking to you at the beginning of this, you know, I want to buy a piece of property the goal in talking to you is to get a pre-approval like that's the first step at least right, um, right so before we ever go to underwriting or anything like that you know i come in i say hey i really you know think i'm ready to buy my first property here are all my things here's my last two years of you know pay stubs and you yeah. know w-2s and taxes and my you know employment information run my credit and you're like great and then what do you come back to me with what do you say at that point like what's you you know we're prepared and we've done it all that what yeah. what I, my goal is this pre-approval and i mean yeah please okay. go ahead <laughs> take okay, her so, away <laughs> so a couple <laughs> couple different things if we're talking um you know land uh, and that kind of thing um all that goes through underwriting up front um along with oh, financial okay. financial documents and so it it goes through a physical underwriter because those are all treated as what we call manual underwrites so there's no way for me to go in and approve somebody just by looking at their financials. I take all that information, um, make it pretty, and then send it to the underwriter. And they come back and say, hey, we're good. Um, they may give, uh, you know, kind of a maximum that they can they can qualify for, or they may change the terms and come back and say, well, if they want this purchase price, then we're going to have to utilize this program or a, maybe a slightly larger down payment. Um, now, if we're talking about residential, uh, we don't typically require any kind of financial documents up front. Um, the one caveat to that is, of course, self-employed borrowers will, you know, require their tax returns just so we can, you know, crunch the numbers uh, on our end because what they see as their bottom line is what they're paying taxes on. So that's not ever what we're going to use <laughs> as uh, as the qualifying figure for their income. So there are right. you know things that we can add back in. Now, if it's if going back to um, 
it being a residential property, um, those aren't usually manual underwrites. So I run everything myself um, and I'll come back to them and, you know, we may have an initial conversation and say, okay, well, what, what kind of uh, payment range are you wanting to be? You know, if it's somebody, you know, they may have some very unrealistic expectations. Um, So I'll kind of go, go in backward uh, as opposed to looking at purchase price and then qualifying from there, qualify them off of the payment that they want. So if someone says, Hey, I I don't want my payment to be above a thousand a month. Well, then you probably need to stop looking at $600,000 properties because right. that's not realistic. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, we kind of go in backward uh, in that case and say, okay, you want a $1,000 payment. This is your purchase price range that you're wanna, going to want to stay in. Got it. Okay. Um, that's much more interactive than what my experience has been Generally speaking, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I'm in LA and it's, you know, maybe we have, <laughs> maybe we have some high, highly taxed, overtaxed uh, mortgage <laughs> brokers here who shorthand everything. Um, but yeah, that definitely sounds much more interactive. I would have loved a conversation like that of, uh, of just asking me what I thought was realistic, mm-hmm. you know, because what my experience was was you know I, I did i submitted all my stuff and what the the mortgage person came back to me with was here's your number this is the max that you can afford yeah um and you know whatever that is it's like based on your income your debt you know your debt to, debt to income ratio all the factors that they take in here's the number here's the magic number and anything up to that you can afford right right and um as as low as that was, because you know I was never a wealthy high earner, um, I still was like, wow. If I actually bought a home for that, I think I would probably have to live off of rice and beans and never yeah. go to a movie, kind of thing. Like, I mean, it, it was like here is the max that you, yeah, literally can afford if you and still just survive without starving to death, basically. Right, right. and that's um, uh, you know that's what I I. I can certainly do that for someone and I do get that question, you know, what, what's the maximum I can qualify for? And it may be something that is well outside what, what they're really wanting to pay. So if you know, I right. come back to somebody and I say, Hey, you qualify for a $5,000 a month mortgage payment. And they go, ah, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to pay anything over 2000. Well, you know, then, you know, we get into that, uh, that situation where, you know, we're trying to qualify people and max them out um, so that essentially they're they're going to be house poor. You know, I make right. my, my mortgage payment and that's all I can do that month. No movies, right. no eating out, no nothing. <laughs> and so right. that might not be what everybody wants. Right. And, you know, maybe that's fine if you, if you are, if you, if you really like, know what you're doing and you're buying at the right time and you you know that that home is going to appreciate or you're going to live in it and you know really fix it up and know that you're going to get some sweat equity into it and there's a plan to get out of that situation but a lot you know i mean that's a that's a far cry from where most first-time property buyers are Mm -hmm. um and and so it's you know exercise caution in other words when you get that number if you, if you work with the kind of mortgage people that i worked with be careful when you get that number and think soberly about do you actually want to buy a property for that amount right um you know 
I mean, and I was fortunate in that I was qualified for myself. And then shortly thereafter married my wife. And so then we had a a whole other income set to add to what I was approved for. So it made sense. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's another thing to think about. Like if you're, you know, if there's, if you know somebody's going to be sharing that mortgage with you um, and, and yet you're, you're getting it approved alone, uh, maybe you can afford that maximum. Right, right. Um, well, great. I mean, I, I think this is like all, I think we've covered some really good stuff. And uh, I mean, there's so many things we could touch on. It's really real estate goes, you know, as deep as you want to go. There's so many, I mean, I was just listening to a, a podcast today where we were talking about, they were talking about wraparound mortgages and subject to oh, um, yep. situations, which is, you know, high level investing where you definitely need to involve attorneys and cutting those deals and structuring those deals and writing up the paperwork for them so that you are actually being legal in what you're doing uh-huh. and also not, <laughs> not getting screwed. Right. Um, but I, I think that's the point. I kind of want to just, I wanted to tantalize people with the opportunities that are available just for your first time, but also, you know, what, what that can lead to, you know, what, what, uh, what owning real estate could be, you know, move to. I mean, for better, or for worse. I'm not, you know, obviously the, not not creating any judgment about this, uh, about the ownership of property in a place where, you know, I mean, a few hundred years ago, that idea was foreign. Um, the idea that land could be owned, and now, you know, it's yeah. it is the for better, or for worse, the basis of our economy, and and something that I think is a form of financial uh, literacy that is sorely lacking and desperately needed um, mm-hmm. for for many many people to just to be able to navigate this this world this <laughs> the world yeah. of america the world the the economy of america and 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 beyond that honestly um can you can you talk just you know any final thoughts about let's say you you're maybe a little more advanced than a first-time buyer and some of the situations that you've seen um, or things that you can speak to in terms of uh, agricultural loans. And, and I think what you talk about is uh, on the website, the way I found you is the idea of a hobby farm. So yes. somebody who, you know, may have a, may live in San Francisco or LA or New York or, you know, some urban center and they are thinking about, you know, at some point I want to have a different lifestyle. <laughs> right. And 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 so can you talk a little bit about that like what's entailed and you know what you've seen like what what kind of what people will need to expect when they're thinking about buying a vineyard in the country or you know buying land in the country that they could use to make wine. Right. In right. some way whether it's vines or trees or whatever. Sure. Um so a couple of a couple of different things and I'll I'll speak to just kind of the, the bare land or vineyards orchards that that kind of thing. Um those properties when we go in uh, and say they are zoned agricultural um we we like to see that the property um when you're looking at different properties we want to see that either it's currently being used in some type of agricultural capacity or that it has the potential to produce some kind of agriculture commodity or product. So um, that is a very, very broad definition with uh, with agriculture. Some people may not realize that uh, that also includes, you know, maybe fresh cut flowers at, uh, mm. you know, bee farms. Um, 
you know, the vineyards, of course, the row crop, you know, all of these things can be uh, used as an agriculture commodity. So that's what we look at um, when we're trying to qualify a property. So just something to kind of keep in mind when you, uh, you know, if you're out, you know, this first time that you're buying land, um, that's kind of what our, our products are geared. But um, the other side of that, that coin is that hobby farm loan product. Um, that is a unique product uh, because most properties, when you look at, and you can certainly buy a house on acreage um, with conventional financing, but a lot of times you'll find that lenders will limit the amount of acreage that you can have uh, because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines, um, they want to see that, you know, that house, um, out of the total value, they want to see that that dwelling has the majority of the value attributed to that property. So they like to see, you know, 65%, 70% goes to the house and the rest, the smaller percentage going to the land. That's much more difficult to do on more sizable properties. So you get into that 100 acre, 200 acre uh, type of property and you know, all of a sudden you find that you can't qualify for conventional financing, which is where that hobby farm loan comes into play. So it's kind of Mm. that happy marriage between residential financing, as well as just a a little, a little touch of the commercial side of things. So it's for those properties that have the dwelling uh, on the property already. It's going to be utilized for a primary residence or a secondary home, but it also allows for, you know, the the larger acreage um, if the property is already, you know, income producing or has those agriculture features on the property. You'll find that um, most of those conventional loans, we, they won't qualify. And so people get frustrated. You know, they've found their their dream home. It's, uh, you know, an equestrian property or, you know, it's got, you know, 40 acres of uh, a vineyard on there. And all of a sudden they can't find a mortgage. And so they can't get the property. Well, that's where that hobby farm loan comes into play. Oh. So I'm guessing that it the analysis is a, a little bit different because it takes in both just the the value of the asset as well as the potential income producing aspect of the land itself got it okay um that's very interesting and then are the terms different for that like is the down you know what somebody Um, needs to put down and yeah a little a little bit so the the main basis for for that product is a full 20 percent down payment but um certain states you know we can uh sometimes add a second mortgage to the back end that will absorb up to another 10%. So mm-hmm. I, I could say that, you know, that could be anywhere from 10 to 20% as a down payment. Got it. I see. Um, so it would almost be like a two loans if it was 10% down right. kind of thing. Right. Got it. That's fascinating. But it, it sounds like it's geared for somebody who, you know, likely is making enough, uh, probably live somewhere else. <laughs> and yeah. this is a second home kind yeah. of thing. Uh, got it. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, I just wanted to talk about it since it was, you know, it's something that you guys seem to specialize in and, and yeah, it is absolutely. an interesting opportunity. Well, and speaking of that, are there any other resources just that you suggest people, you know, look to if they are embarking on this process? 
Oh gosh, um, real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> right. So number one, mortgage. <laughs> number two, yeah. real. well, and and that's the thing. I I forgot to close that loop, which is like right. Real estate agents do come in very handy um, after they've you you know after a potential property purchaser, <laughs> so it's sort of yeah. a home buyer, um, speaks to you uh, and gets that financial snapshot and gets the you know approval for whatever that is whatever that amount is then they can go to an agent then an agent is much more happy to talk to you when they say when you say look i've you know i already have my pre-approval uh, of x amount of whatever and i'm looking to buy you know x kind of property right. can you help me do yeah, that and then the agent's com- like absolutely like let's yeah, do yeah they're much more you receptive. Just made the- Right. Um, and that's where they really come into play and can help facilitate because they're now going to have the conversations with the selling agents or sellers uh, that you are, you know, you know, they're not going to be wanting to talk to a buyer. They're going to want to talk to an agent at that right. point. And so that's why you need them um, to have those conversations and bring you the details and ideally represent your interests exactly. <laughs> um yeah. al- although it does you know i will say from as a former agent you you know there are many things to look out for dual agency is one of them that means that an agent can represent both the buyer and the seller you want to avoid that if you can mm-hmm. <laughs> um yep because uh you know at the end of the day well i hate i hate that phrase at the end of the day um but <laughs> you know an agent <laughs> at the end of the day the sun sets um <laughs> an agent uh you know the the joke was made in some movie where it's like they make money whether whatever you whatever happens basically. So right. you could argue that they have a vested interest in the transaction happening regardless of how it happens um, because that's how they make money. But of you know there are many good agents out there, and I don't want to be cynical about anybody. And you know, <laughs> but it is set up that way, so you do have to look out for your own interests and question because I've seen that there are bad interests agents out there as well who are you know will lie to their clients etc um i've encountered it all uh, if, you, right, if you stay in right. the business long enough so you know just, just a cautionary tale um you know if you have somebody you know and trust that's also an agent that's great and otherwise you know and even if you do always do your own homework and think carefully about the things that you're being told get as much information as you can on your own right um trust trust but verify basically yeah exactly there you go and but let's uh you know i want i want you to have a chance to talk about your company and and whatnot is is there you know who who do you work for and and is this is this somebody you would recommend people contacting you would you recommend people getting in touch and uh, reaching out to you (laughs) yeah (laughs) absolutely absolutely um so our, our our main company is uh called united mortgage um, the agriculture division is uh, United Ag Lending, so it's the same company. It's just you know the the agriculture division obviously has uh, specific designated individuals who do work on those loans since they are so much different um, than just your more traditional financing. So um, again, I work on both sides. I still do all of my residential things uh, as well as the agriculture side. So. Um, and we do loans pretty much all over. Um, we're specifically licensed um, in, well, I guess I should say we're, we're getting additional licensing, but that's also in the works. That's so that we can do the, you know, more of the residential side as well. 
Um, okay. So yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions or kind of help uh, walk through some scenarios, anything like that. And what, what is your um, company's website and, and any contact information that you'd like to give? Um, I mean, they can go to, uh, it, it's pretty simple, just united unitedmortgage.com or uh, unitedaglending.com are the main websites. And is that the best way to find a contact page and start asking those questions? Or do you, I mean, is there a direct contact that you want to give out? <laughs> you certainly don't have oh, to, but. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, uh, my direct line uh, would be 913-378-2812. Um, and then I've got two different emails, but uh, it's either bshepherd at umloans.com. That's B. S H E P H E R um or the other the other email on my agriculture side. I know it gets a little confusing having <laughs> two emails but for the same company, but uh would be B Shepherd at United A G Lending.com. Got it. Well thank you so much. Is there do you have any closing things? Is there anything that we missed or that you've or that we covered that we should give any caveats to <laughs> that you <laughs> want any close or just any closing thoughts? Um, you know, I, I know that, uh, the, the market right now, um, has been a little, a little scary to deal with, but <laughs> as long as you've got, uh, the right individuals working with you, um, you know, those kind of things can easily be navigated, but you have to have, um, you know, your the right team set up and in place uh, and make sure that they've got your financial interests in mind. Um, and I think that, uh, that's about it. So we, uh, you know, I, I try and tell my people that, you know, the, the buying process, whether it's buying land or buying a residence, um, that process should always feel seamless to you. Um, so let let me deal with the stress and <laughs> run around with my hair on fire. Uh, I would much rather prefer shouldering all of that um, than having the buyers deal with that. Yeah, it's that's great. I, I, and I know that so much of you know this process is that, uh, especially if you haven't been through it, is that fear of the unknown. And absolutely, it's such a big deal. It's you know one of the you know as 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 a. a a cliche but it's one of the biggest purchases you'll make in your life usually mm-hmm. um and so i understandably people get <laughs> very uh caught up in in emotion about it right, right and and uh yeah and and so it is great to talk to people who know a lot and just ha- are willing to answer all of your paranoid questions repeatedly right. <laughs> um i i can't can't uh, say enough about how important it is to just talk to smart people who know more than you do and can sort of guide you through the process. It definitely, definitely helps. Um, and you know, I have nothing to sell in this. I'm just put you know, other than I think, you know, like I said, my, my whole uh, mission, you know, for a while was really to, to help spread the word about how important um, this kind of knowledge is to just being, you know, financially literate in on, in our economy and, and, in, in hopes that it will reach somebody who, you know, it turns on a light bulb and, you know, may change their life in the sense that they start 
you know, start a process that, that pulls them and their family into a, a different financial situation than what maybe they grew up with or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so thank you so much for your time and, and Absolutely. all this invaluable information that you provide, Brady. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.